The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message by Beth Coppage. What a joy to be back again today. I missed you. I'm so glad Jesus showed up last time we were together. It's all about Jesus, so we're so glad to be here together. We're going to look a little bit in review at Acts 6 and also at Acts 7, but I want to read from Revelation, if that's all right. And so I'm going to start in Revelation 21. We're going to look at the end of this story. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Or today, as we study about Luke, about a Stephen, we might put, then I, Stephen, saw the holy city, because this is a little bit of what Stephen saw. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain, for the former things will have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. It is done. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son or daughter. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then if you'll turn to 22. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut by day, and there shall be no night. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Dear Lord Jesus, we wait expectantly this morning in your presence. We praise you and we worship you. We thank you for who you are. We praise you for your death and your resurrection. We praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And today we ask, dear Jesus, that you would come and open up the word of truth to our lives that we would never ever be the same because we have met together this morning. We pray that eternity will be different 
because we have met together. So, Father, we love you, we worship you, and we wait on tiptoe this morning to hear from God. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Last, week, last time we met together, we looked at Acts 6, if you will remember. And remember as we looked at as Susan Lettuce and looking at the person of Stephen, we see here a little bit of the crisis in the early church as to the leadership because there was just more work to do and they needed more people. So we get a little vision or a vignette of what the early church did about lifting up leaders and the qualifications of leadership. So it's kind of a snapshot. It's, it's a study in church growth, we might be able to say. And so we found that they needed more help in caring for the widows. And so they selected seven men. And the chapters six, seven, and eight are vignettes on two of the lives of these men. Now, what were the qualifications for not just the apostolic ministry, but for the lay ministry in the early church? They're the same qualifications that we have for today. One, the men were to be full of the Holy Spirit. They were to be good reputation, and they were to have wisdom, which comes from the Spirit. And so they chose Stephen, who was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and then the rest of the list. Now we have that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, that's in verse three. In verse five, he's full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. In verse eight, he's full of faith and power. And then in verse 10, he has wisdom and the Spirit in his life. The key ingredient for what you and I and for the early church, for the leadership team, was that to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Stephen was so full of the Holy Spirit that when he was drawn, he couldn't keep, he couldn't just wait on tables, even though he was able to wait on tables, which you and I are only able to wait on tables and serve out of the limelight and do it in a manner which honors the Lord Jesus when we have the presence of the Spirit in our lives. But there was an urgency in him, so he went to the synagogues and had to share Jesus among the people in the synagogues with a wisdom and an unction and anointing that they couldn't get over. But it also made them angry because anytime Jesus is proclaimed in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you see at the same time the activity of the evil one and there is opposition as well as response. And that happened here. So Stephen finds himself before the Sanhedrin and as he stands before them, his face is like the face of the angel, an angel. As we get ready to look at the chapter seven, and Peter's, uh, Stephen's discourse before the Sanhedrin, I want to know today, what are you full of? Are you full of the Spirit? And when you're in difficult circumstances and when I'm in difficult circumstances, do we glow like the face of an angel? Or is our, do our countenances reflect something other than the glory of God? What God is giving us is he is giving us a picture of what a person filled with the Spirit looks like. We've seen it in Peter in, in the chapters before, but he was one of the apostles who lived with Jesus. Stephen didn't have that opportunity. And as we look at Jesus, as we look at Stephen, we get an opportunity to see what a person filled with the Spirit is supposed to look like. And what does Stephen look like? He looks like Jesus. He looks like Jesus. 
He looks like Jesus when he's waiting on tables. He can do it with joy. He looks like Jesus when no one's there to say, good job, Stephen, good job. He looks like Jesus when he's able to share Jesus in the synagogue. He looks like Jesus when he's before the Sanhedrin and the opposition and the hatred is so intense, but he still glows like a little light bulb was let off inside of him. He looks like Jesus. So we see the glory of God is restored in a man or a woman or a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. The glory of God is restored in his life. So that the curse of Genesis 3 that we spoke about when we looked at Acts 2 is reversed. There's a restoration of the glory of God. And so that the glory of God ends chapter 6 and it is the beginning of chapter 7 because the glory of God is how he starts out his message in the Sanhedrin. Now these are the very same people who crucified the Lord Jesus. This is their third or fourth opportunity to have another witness. Ladies, talk about the love of Jesus. He is going back. They've heard from Jesus himself. They crucified him. They've heard from Peter twice. And now once again, they're hearing from Stephen, the same men. Jesus does not want any of us to end up in hell. He doesn't want any of us to end up in an eternity that is separated from God because of the horrible, horrific nature of eternity without God. So he goes back again and again and again to the very people that killed his son. God sends Stephen one more time back to these very same men. There's incredible hope in the gospel because of the incredible love of God for you and me and the incredible love of God for every single person on his globe. And he starts his message and where they had accused him that he had said blasphemous words against the holy place in verse 13 and against the law. And for this they had called him in before the Sanhedrin. Now in an incredible show of wisdom and artfully done, Stephen presents to the Sanhedrin the best theological dialogue that is given in the Old Test from the Old Testament recorded in the New Testament. And it was not done by one of the apostles. It was done by a layman who was to serve the widows and the orphans. So that we see in Stephen a man who's full of the Holy Spirit, who has not only the character of Jesus, but he has the mind of Jesus and he knows the word of God. And if you and I are, know the fullness of his spirit in our lives, there's going to come into your heart and my heart a hunger for the word of God. And one of the marks of a spirit-filled person is the word becomes life and breath to you and me so that we can live literally without eating food. But we cannot live without our morning quiet time or our afternoon quiet time. There is a hunger in our hearts to not only know about God, but to know him. So that God comes in and Stephen knew the word. Today, are you filled with the spirit? Are you filled with his glory? In difficult circumstances, who shines forth? You or Jesus? Jesus can set us free and transform us. So even our enemies know that there's a difference about you and me because of the radiance of Jesus Christ coming through in our lives. 
Do you know the word? Do you hunger for the word? If you and I don't hunger for the word, we need to get on our faces and say, Jesus, why is there no appetite for your word? Is it because there is sin there? Because when God comes in his glory, God comes and restores us to himself. And just like he said in Acts 2, he restores the image of God and the glory of God, but then he also restores us in a love relationship with the eternal God. And in doing that, he deals thoroughly with sin. And sin is the thing that cuts our appetite for God's word. And he started out with the word of God. I want to know if you are a student of the word of God so that you meet God every single day someplace in your home and you meet him in the word. I challenge you. I beseech you today, ask him for a hunger for himself and for his word. One of the preachers of all time that's been one of my favorites through the years, he said one of the greatest gifts that God ever gave me was a hunger for himself and a hunger for his word. I want to know, do you live in the word? Stephen did. Because when he had his opportunity to share before the Sanhedrin, he was ready. He was ready. And he was able to take the word and from it artfully draw them to Jesus. As you study this week, I challenged you in your homework to begin to write out your testimony so that when you and what Jesus has done in your life. And then I challenge you this week to take that testimony and what Jesus has done in your life and the scripture verses that he has used to draw you to himself. And then sometime in the course of this next week, find someone with whom to share your testimony. This is Easter week. This is resurrection week. And let this be the week that God comes and you begin to articulate on paper and then even say it to them in the mirror if you need to or to one of the girls in your small group and say, can you listen to my testimony and then begin to prayerfully ask Jesus to give you someone to share your testimony with? It was sweet. I heard from Katie Beth in Hungary this week. We had a great talk yesterday. And she said, I took um, Abby's class to the dentist on a field trip and they asked if we, I could drive. And she said, it was, I felt, she said, the Lord was with me and I said, yes. And she said, the teacher got in the car and, uh, and Abby's teacher and we were talking in Hungarian. And she said, Katie Beth, how is it that your children love each other every day Annie and Susanna come to check on Abby. Why? And then she said, Abby loves Sadie, who's not even in this school. She talks about her all the time. Why? I've never seen siblings who love each other, and I want to know why. She said, the teacher had seen the glory, not in the adults, but in the children. And so she said, I'll tell you why. His name is J-E-S-U-S, Jesus, and they know him. And so they have the capacity to love each other instead of being in competition with each other. Well, then they got to the dentist's office and there was a Hungarian mama there. 
And she said, Katie Beth, I received your note inviting us to a resurrection party for the children. She said, I am a believer in Jesus as well. And she didn't know that there was another believer in the children's school. So God wants to have you and I be so filled with his glory, even our children, so that the world can look and say, why do they love each other like that? I remember hearing my sister Katie when she lived in France. One day she got a phone call from Francois, the children's teacher, and she said, I must come to see you. Well, Katie was terrified. She said, oh my goodness. And so she, she came and she walked in and there and, and over Kate's um, sofa was a picture of the presence of Jesus. And it's in the, the front is, is all the, the, like it's in a cathedral, like a French cathedral. And there's all the front. But in the back is a little woman kneeling and next to the woman kneeling is Jesus himself. Not in the fronts with all the pomp and circumstance, but in the back with the weeping woman. And Francoise came and stood before that picture and she said, I do not understand this, but I think I have seen it in action this week. And Katie said, what do you mean? She said, we had a birthday party at school and she said, we had like a piñata. So we cracked the piñata, and then all the candy fell. She said, all the children grabbed and fought over the candy, but your three girls didn't touch the candy till everyone else had had some, and the ones that didn't get candy, they found candy and gave away before they had any candy at all. She said, I've taught children for years and years and years, and I have never seen children respond in such a way. And Katie said, it's Jesus. He makes a difference in the human heart. You can think about someone other than yourself first, even if you're a child. It is a reflection of his glory. And what did we saw you here in Stephen, a reflection of that glory. So what do you see? He starts with three men in Old Testament scriptures that reflect the glory of God. And ladies, I can't tell you how this has blessed my soul. And it's caused me, I said, oh Lord, I wanna be abandoned to you in the same way that these men were. One, Abraham. Abraham, the father, he was restored to a love relationship with the eternal God. Why? Because he heard the voice of God and left everything to follow Jesus. He followed him and he left his country and his relatives. He heard God's voice and he paid the price. Whatever God asked, he did. Then when he followed him into the promised land, he was in a man of incredible faith. God said, I'll give you this land to your descendants. The man has no children and he has no land. And for 25 years, he waits for God. But Stephen says, 
He entered into a love relationship with the eternal God before there was a Bible, before the law was given in Exodus. This is in Genesis. And before there was a temple or a tabernacle. He hungered enough for the eternal God that God met him and he heard him and he responded to him. And not only that, for 25 years he waited. And he waited in faith, believing. And they said, what are you doing over here in, the, in, in Canaan? Well, I don't know. God called me. And he said, I'm going to have a home here, and I'm going to have descendants. Well, Mr. Abraham, how many kids do you have now? Well, none yet. Well, how old are you? Well, I'm 85. And how old's Miss Sarah? Well, she's 75. Well, do you have any property? No, not quite yet. And the man, it waited 25 years before he had one son. So he dies with one son, and he dies with one piece of property, and it was a burial prop, probably six feet by four feet. But he believed God. He believed God. And do you know, I was reading F.F. Bruce in the commentary, and he said, Oh, that God would begin to look for some of us that when there was absolutely nothing to hold on to but God himself, you and I would not let go, but would set our hearts hold on to the eternal God no matter what. And there was such a detachment in him, a detachment from material things, a detachment from house and lands, even a detachment from those he loved because the ultimate reality in his life was his love relationship with God. I want to know in your life and in my life there will be times, ladies, if you're not in them right now, when there'll be a stripping away of your support system. There'll be a stripping away of where you'll find yourself in a little tiny church, someplace, somewhere where they will not understand you, where you will not have warm fellowship like you know today. And you'll begin to say, what am I doing here? I must not have heard God right. This seems to be a total waste of my life. And then as we sit there, do you know what will begin to happen? We will have the opportunity to give God like lavish love and say, God, I choose to love you. I choose to believe in you. I choose to stay here until you move me out by a divine act of God. I choose to believe you if I die with a six by four burial plot and only one son when you promise me the nations. And then God said, then he gives him the covenant of circumcision that was cut into the very flesh of the husband on behalf of the wife and the children. It was a mark of the covenant relationship between the eternal God. Do you think Abraham understood all the significance of that? No, I don't believe he did, but he entered into that covenant relationship and he passed that covenant on down to the generations. I want to know today, are you passing that covenant on down to the generations? Is there something in your life where a love relationship with Jesus has been restored so it's not Jesus plus what he can do for me or Jesus plus, but it's just Jesus himself and you have come to the place where Jesus has become enough for you? And as you begin to enter into that, you begin to enter into a freedom and a life you never dreamed possible. It is a mark of the spirit-filled life. Then he leads him to Joseph. And he said, before there was a temple, before the law had been given, there's an Abraham who by faith enters into a covenant relationship with God. And then he said, before there was a temple or a tabernacle or the law, 
There was a Joseph who reflected the beauty of holiness, which is another mark in Acts 2 from from Psalm 110. He said, you will enter into the beauty of holiness and the evil one will will be the footstool of God. And even though Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, he was abused and betrayed. Even though Joseph ended up going to prison wrongfully, Joseph chose to trust God in the midst of incredible circumstances and incredible difficulties, and he refused to sin. He refused to sin. And he said, I don't understand what God has allowed in my life. I don't know why he's done this, allowed this for me, but I refuse to sin and I choose to set my heart on the heart of God and I will not be deterred from serving him. And there was a beauty in the life of Joseph that today we stand with our mouths open when we look at the life of Joseph. He refused to sin against God and he sought God so that when God needed a man to, to lead a nation, And to save a nation, he had his man. And God wants you and I to become women after God's own heart. So there comes into our hearts the beauty of holiness that we'd rather die than sin against Jesus Christ. And there's a sense we'd obey Jesus Christ no matter what it costs. That the beauty of holiness is a reflection in our life. And that the evil one's power is broken. He becomes a footstool for God because of all that we've allowed God to do in our souls. And ladies... This is in Genesis. And he said in Genesis that he had the mark of the Spirit of God about him. And God's looking for women today that have a mark of the Spirit of God upon them that reflect the beauty of holiness. And many times, you and I in our situations are excusers. Well, I could live for God, but after all, you know what I've been through? And some of you have been through awful, horrible terrible things. Or you can say, well, I could really live for God, but you know, my, we're accusers or excusers, and God wants us to be choosers. The accusers say it's somebody else's fault. The excusers say, well, my circumstance is so bad, what could have happened to me? This is the best I can do. Or we can be choosers of life no matter what life has given us, we choose him. And God is looking for those of us who are like Joseph, that choose him in life, but not only in life, but in death. And do you know what? It's been a blessing. Do you know what? Joseph was still in Egypt when he died. But his last words in Genesis 50, 25 and 26 are, when God delivers you, Take my bones with you to the promised land. No question that God was coming. And there wasn't a disappointment that God hadn't moved even in his life. God is looking for those of us who are women who believe God, even if we do not see all that we long for in our lives before he comes and takes us to himself. But we lay down such stakes, say, God, I believe that you're going to move. You're going to work not only in our lives, but in the lives of my children, those born and those yet unborn, in the generations yet to come. So that when God comes and delivers you, take my bones with you, because he will come. And in Exodus 13, 19, they carried out Joseph's bones. 
I want to know today, do you have a life that's worth living for Jesus? And when it comes to your dying, will you and I have a life that's worth dying for Jesus? Do we know what it is to walk in that kind of abandon to Jesus Christ? Then he gives us Moses and a restoration of the life of God in Moses. And it's an incredible story. And God allowed the incredible pressure of Pharaoh on the people of God because what he's trying to do is mold together, even allowing suffering that the people of God might become a nation. And in Israel, they became a na- in Egypt, they became a nation. But if it had been gone well there, they would have just stayed and been assimilated into Egypt. And so God allows pressure upon their lives because he wants to move them out and he wants them to really count because they're to be the witnessing agent for a lost world. And God allows suffering in your life and mine and we rail against it and say, oh, where are you, God? And God wants to use it to accomplish his purposes in your life and mine so that he can begin to have a nation to show a lost world of what God is like. We reflect his glory, we reflect his beauty, we reflect his holiness. So Moses was born and they were exposing the babies to death and he was allowed to live. And he was trained in all the wisdom of Egypt and he felt in his heart that God had a destiny for him and he was to be part of the salvation of the people of God. But he tried to do God's work in his own way and on his timetable. And there's some of us that feel that God wants to use us. And there's a call of God and a whisper of God in our hearts in every single one of us because God has a purpose for every single life here. Every single one of us, and it is unique. But sometimes you and I don't want to wait for God. We don't want to go through the discipline of God. We don't want to really get to know God or really get to know his will. So we try to serve God in our own strength, and we abort the purposes of God. And Moses ended up with a murder on his hands and a murder in his conscience because he tried to do it in his time in his own way and strength. And God is looking for those of us who say, wait a minute, God, I believe you've got a purpose for me, but I am willing for you to make me into the woman you want me to be. I will submit to what you have for my life. And then, Lord, will you do in my life what you want? So out of my life is the life of Joseph, and out of my life is the life of Moses after the burning bush. Because in the burning bush, he met God. And he met God on the backside of the desert and not one of those desert years was wasted because he knew every palm tree and every water hole when in just a few years he brought two million people across that desert. But he met God and then God said, would you go with me? I'm the deliverer. And would you be a participant in what I am doing? And God is looking for us today to say, yes, Lord, I will wait on you and I recognize you are the deliverer and I will be, I long though to be a participant in what you are doing on your timetable, not mine. And he was to be, and, and he led them out of Egypt but they rejected him. And ladies, sometimes you and I will serve him faithfully, give our lives to causes or to Jesus and serve causes and institutions and churches. And then we'll find 
that comes to the end and there's a rejection. Don't be surprised. <laughs> Don't be surprised because one we serve is Jesus. And they rejected Moses. And then they actually chose to go back in their hearts. They turned back to Egypt, verse 39. And he said, and said, make gods for us that have delivered us. And they sent, centered their lives and their thoughts in secondary things instead of the full will and the full purposes of God. I want to know today, are we centering our lives in him so that the primary things in our lives are the eternal or we are centering our lives on the secondary things? I was recently in a different state and I, w I was with a, a, a woman. <clears throat> she said to me, she took me to see... Um, to her town and stuff. We're driving around. And then, and then um, she said, um, I love my home. And I saw it, it was nice, you know. And she said, I love my work. And I, I just listened. And then we got ready to go into lunch. And as we sat in the car, she said, you know, I've never really sold out to Jesus. And I asked him today, why? And she said, it's because of fear. Fear. Fear of what he'll take away from me. Fear I'll have to give up my home that I like or my job that I like. Fear. Ladies, I've been in such grief over that conversation because we are going to substitute the eternal realities of living a love adventure with the eternal God that literally may take us around the globe for Jesus because we won't let go of a nice farmhouse or a job in a little two-by-four town? I said, oh God, I don't want that. I don't want to get to the end of my days and say, I missed all the glory of God in my own life, as well as all the glory of God for what you wanted to do in my life, in your time and in your way, as I submitted to your love and submitted to your, your, your chastening of my life, so that I wouldn't profane your name wherever, whenever the time was right for you to use me. But he said, oh God, don't let me miss it for a house. I don't know what it is in your life. It could be exercise. It could be horses. It could be family. And do you know what God does? If we surrender our family to us, he gives us better family time and he gives us better time together because we have the capacity to love each other instead of use each other to get our own needs met for ourselves. 
God wants to set us free. God wants to set us free. But they rejected the eternal God, and do you know what they chose? They chose the gods of their own creation. They worshiped the planets and the sun and the stars and the fertility gods. Amos talks about it in the quote in the last part of 43 and 44. They chose the nature instead of the one who created it. And ladies, unless you and I are full of the Holy Spirit and totally his, you and I will live our lives living for secondary causes instead of for the purposes for which Jesus died and gave his life so that you and I could reflect his glory and know him in all his beauty and his sweetness. It's so interesting. In that quote in Amos, it talks about the wormwood and do you know what I read and in your homework this week is a hymn from Bernard of Clairvaux. In 1091 to 1253, Bernard of Clairvaux lived in France. He was a nobleman's son. And one day he was riding in the countryside. His, his mother and father lived in a feudal castle in Fontaine, France. And he, he saw a chapel and he was confronted by the eternal God and ended up on his knees and just like Moses met Jesus. And his life was transformed. He led 30 of his friends to Jesus and they all went to the local monastery and gave themselves to God. Well, the monastic order didn't know what to do with 30 people who knew Jesus personally. So literally, they sent 12 of these men to a place called Wormwood. Wormwood. And that's just what Amos talks about. He talks about Wormwood. <laughs> Listen to this. In Amos 5. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it. This is to Amos 5, 6. With no one to quench it in Bethel, you who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the world. What Israel had done, it was take justice and righteousness and make it into wormwood. They profaned all that God intended. But what Bernard of Clairvaux did when they sent him to literally to wormwood in France, he changed it into a valley, into Clairvaux, into valley of, of light. He changed it into the clear valley, and he's known as Bernard of Clairvaux. And not only did he preach the gospel up and down Wormwood, but it just been swampy, destructive land. He brought in agriculture, and he made the whole area just be a valley of light and glory. And then that order went and established 162 monasteries in the beginning of the 12th century all over France that preached that you could know Jesus Christ personally and that God cared about you and there was social holiness that impacted the economic community every place he went. What God wants today is take the wormwood in your life and turn it into a valley of joy and gladness and beauty. He wants, but what you and I do when we choose to go our own way and do our own thing like Israel did, choose not to let him have every part of our life because we're afraid to let go of our trinkets and toys that God, we end up making wormwood instead of creating all that God wants us. God wants to come. He's looking today for some Stephens. Then he ends up and he said, 
The temple and the tabernacle were the symbols of the living presence and reality of God in the lives of God's people. But the Jewish Sanhedrin had made them the reality so that the temple and the tabernacle were the reality for them. And it isn't. They are simple, sim simply symbols of the living presence of God alive and well in his people. I want to know today, is Jesus alive and well in your hearts? Do you know the presence of Jesus in his reality? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? When your time comes and mine times comes to enter into his presence, will we be able to live well like Stephen did? And will we be able to die well like Stephen did? So that Stephen died just like Jesus did, asking for the forgiveness of the very people that martyred him. And he died, and out of that brutal death, he simply fell asleep in the arms of Jesus who was waiting to receive him. He died in the glory of God. He died literally seeing the presence of Jesus. And Jesus is showing us here an example of how you and I can live. We can live so that the living presence of Jesus is a reality as we wash dishes. It's a reality as we read bedtime stories. It's reality when we take out the trash. It's a reality when we talk to our neighbors next door. Jesus wants to be a living reality, alive and well, so that his glory can be reflected out of your life and mine. And the world can say, is that what God's like? And we don't profane his name. God is asking us today, have you and I been filled with his Holy Spirit? And he fell asleep and he saw the glory of God. In eternity, our 70 years here will be simply a twinkling of the eye. God wants us to invest it in himself. Are you living in the presence of of Jesus. Let's pray. <coughs> Jesus, you are so good, Jesus. I pray today we will not hear one lie of the evil one. We will not hold on to anything in our lives. We will come to you and say, Jesus, restore to me the love, the glory of God that was lost in sin. Restore to me a love relationship with you so you are the absolute joy and passion of my soul. Restore to me the beauty of holiness so that I don't spend my life bitter and resentful and crabby and cross, but just full of the sweetness and love and laughter of Jesus. Restore unto me the life that Jesus longs to give me. Don't let me settle for secondary things. And then restore unto me the agape love of God, that there's a capacity in me because of the presence of the Spirit of Jesus to love even those that long to put me to death, that we can love our enemies and forgive those who sin against us. Lord, you want us to be set free, set free even before we enter into your presence physically so we see you face to face. 
This is the anteroom to eternity, so we can begin to know the incredible joy and freedom of living in the lovely, beautiful presence of Jesus, even today. Let today be a Resurrection Wednesday in the life of someone here. So this Easter will be an Easter like she's never known before because she knows you not just in symbol, but in reality. Jesus, we worship you. We praise you. We love you. In your mighty name, amen. If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at tituswomen.org.